So please do turn back to Genesis chapter 18, which is found on page 17 of the Church Bibles. And uh, leave your Bible open, if you will. We are on a journey, as I'm sure you are aware, through the book of Genesis. It's not quite Leviticus, but it's almost there. In fact, I was talking to Bruce Kitching earlier this week and he wondered which chapter of Leviticus I was going to be preaching on tonight. I don't know why people think that. And we're currently up to the life of Abraham and Sarah and their journey with God. But before we go any further, let's continue to pray, shall we? Father, once again we, we thank you that we have such freedom in this country to meet whenever we feel that we want to. And not just want to, but because we need to. We need to feed off each other and show that we are indeed unified through your Son. May the words that I speak tonight be from you. And may we leave here not only challenged, but also comforted. And all of God's people said, Amen. Genesis 18 and verse 1. There I was in Mamre, a distance away from Ur, where we, we used to live quite comfortably, sitting in the opening of our tent under the shade of the great trees there in Hebron, in the middle of yet a, another swelteringly hot day. Beautiful. I was looking down into the dust and wondering to myself, what on earth was going on? My wife, now called Sarah was inside the tent doing whatever it is that wives do in the middle of a hot day here. As a mere male, I've got no idea. I'm remembering back to a day when our life changed. That was when God said he was going to bless me and made promises to me. Little old me, accent on the old. After all, I'm 318 years myself. Wives are always right, and that's what my wife says. Little old me, Abraham of the Chaldees. Not only to me, but also to Sarah, my wife. God told me specifically and with authority, I will be the father of a great nation. I will receive personal blessing, I will receive personal honour and a grand status. I will be a source of blessing to others, me, Little old Abraham from the Chaldees. And what's more, there'll be blessings on those who bless me and the nation which comes from me. Just as there will be curses on those who curse me and that nation. I have been called by God. Personally and explicitly. Not only me, but my wife as well. That was 25 years ago now. Not too bad for somebody 99 years of age, is it? It all seems rather inconceivable, really, seeing as both my wife and I are aged. I can't give my wife's age because I'll get in trouble. Sarah, my wife, had been made a promise by God and that she would be having a baby. Inconceivable, it seems, doesn't it? Sarah, my wife, is beyond the normal childbearing age to start conceiving a family. That's plainly evident. 
the way of motherhood has passed her by. In our culture where we're from, to be a childless couple, well, the majority of the stigma falls on the woman. It's never the man's fault. It's a shame on her, isn't it? But regardless, I stepped out in faith, trusted the Lord, and here we are on a journey. Then suddenly, I looked up from the dust, and I saw them. Much to my surprise, how did I not see them coming from a long distance off? Am I seeing things? They seem to appear out of nowhere. Three men. Three men just standing there, looking towards me. Stalkers? I'm sure that I recognise that one in the middle. Have I met him before? I still can't work out how I never saw them approaching. I hurried to them, despite my great age and the searing heat. I wanted to show them that an even greater welcoming honour than the one that my culture usually allowed to strangers. I bowed down as low as I could get, even lower than normal to convey a a greater honour upon them. I asked them to come in for a little light refreshment before they continued their journey in the heat of the day, but like the drop of coffee we have later. And they replied, all right then, go and do as you've said. It was a bit blunt, wasn't it? It stunned me, to be honest, if I'm being honest. And so I scurried back, I ensured water was taken to them and returned to Sarah in the tent. Quick, Sarah, we have visitors. One of them may be the Lord again. I'm not sure. They're all in the appearance of men. Cook up some of that bread, that unleavened bread from the recipe your mum taught you. The one that only takes a short time. We haven't got time for anything else. That bread that won't take too long to cook. I'll go get a good tender calf and have one of the servants prepare it for eating. And while he does that, I'll get more yogurt and milk to accompany it all. I will serve them out under the shade of the trees. Cushy, in it. I will serve them out. I will serve them as is our custom. Will you please stay here, my love? My Sarah, stay here. So there I was, waiting on our visitors as per the custom of our day, treating them to the hospitality of our culture. When all of a sudden, out of the blue, one of our guests asked, where is Sarah, your wife? How did these folks, these men, if that's what they really are, know her name? Any doubt that this was the Lord God began to leave me. After all, he would know Sarah's name. He's the one who changed it. And if it was the Lord, we had indeed met before. It must be the Lord. It must be the Lord, my God. The other two must be angels in disguise, I guess. If this really is the Lord God, then this is the one who blessed us and honoured us when he changed our names to Abraham and Sarah. He called us out of our nice, comfortable life in Ur. I offered in response to our guest, well, she's inside the tent. Then almost surprisingly, one of them said that he will return in a year and by then Sarah and I will have had a child, a son. Yeah, right. 
It was then that my wife, Sarah, chuckled quietly. Almost silently, she talked to herself. No way. I'm outside the age of normal motherhood, and Abraham's also a bit old now, isn't he? But my guests still heard that quiet laugh and that comment. Then I was questioned. Me? I didn't do anything wrong. Why did Sarah laugh mockingly and dispute what I said about you having a child? Is there anything that is too hard for God to do? This time, next year, you will have a son. Be assured of that fact. However, be of good courage, the pair of you. What I have said, I will accomplish. I always keep my promises. At which point, my dear Sarah, who had clearly been eavesdropping, responded. She responded by denying that she had laughed. Oh dear, you can't get the wise, can you? She did this to cover the embarrassment of being found out. You did, Sarah. I heard you, the Lord God gently rebuked her for telling an alternative fact. With that, our guests arose and looked out towards the evil city of Sodom. Being a good host, I arose and walked with them to see them safely away. Wondering why they were going to such a place renowned for injustice, oppression of the innocent, wickedness and unrighteousness. The one, the one I identified as the Lord started speaking quietly to himself. He was asking himself a question and then answering it for himself. Well, I suppose they say maturity is, first sign of maturity is talking to yourself. Or so it seemed. I guess he could have also been talking to the other two. Regardless, I could hear what he was saying. Hmm. Should I tell Abraham concerning my plan for Sodom? He was asking himself a question and then answering it for himself. Or so it seemed. He, Abraham, will certainly become a mighty and great nation. Indeed, the whole earth will be blessed by me through him. Abraham will instruct and direct the family and ancestors in a way to follow me rightly and justly. I have promised him and I will do it. I am the Lord and I keep my promises. I will uphold my end of the deal. I have heard such a cry from the innocents there that we are going to see if things really are as we have heard. A cry of pain from those being oppressed and violated. An outcry against injustice by those who are weak and oppressed. I don't rely on gossip and hearsay. I have heard and I care for them. I want to see the full story for myself and see if anything has been left out. I am a compassionate God and I seek to act on behalf of those wronged and I will put things right. Does the hullabaloo and the noise match the reality of oppression and injustice? Two of our guests then continued their journey onwards to Sodom. However, the third one, the Lord, 
waited with me and seemingly also waited for me to respond to him. Seemingly waited for me to talk to him. Therefore I neared him and said, quite boldly yet humbly, in that place, Sodom, where you heard that outcry from the innocent, will you really deliver judgment upon both those who are righteous and those who are wicked? What about if there are 50 such innocent, righteous folk there? Are you going to do away with them as well as those who have transgressed against you and others? Will you not spare the city for their sake? How can you, a righteous yet just and merciful God, destroy both the wicked and the righteous together? Why would you want to do such a thing? You are the judge of the whole earth and you should do right, surely, shouldn't you? Can you, O oh God, deny yourself and do contrary to your very nature? Then I went silent, allowing the Lord to respond to me. And he did. Abraham, if there are 50 righteous people there, I will spare the city. Okay, Lord, I know that compared to you, a righteous and holy God, a just one, I am but mere dust and ashes. I'm not worthy to be speaking to you. However, what if there are only 45? Surely you won't decimate that city because of five people short of your number. Nope, not for the sake of 45 people, Abraham. Forty folk? Nope, I, the Lord, won't destroy the city if we find 40 righteous and innocent people there. Okay, I was really still concerned for those people. I imagine that it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of God. So plaintively I progressed. Thirty righteous people? Nope, not if I find thirty, Abraham. Okay, Lord, in my boldness, how about twenty? No, Abraham, not if I find twenty. Then I thought to myself, one last push, Abraham, come on, man. Lord God, please do not be angry with me. I'm concerned for the innocent ones. One more request, a final one. How about if there are only ten people found there? Abraham, I will not destroy for the sake of ten innocent and righteous people. And with that, the Lord God finished his conversation with me and went on to meet his companions. Meanwhile, I went back to my tent and pondered all these things further. Lot, my nephew, was near Sodom. I hope that he and his family are okay and that they will be okay. Well, that is Genesis 18. It's all a bit exciting, really, isn't it? And I hope you don't mind my paraphrasing it and adding some context and explanation to the, to the Bible text rather than simply stating the context and explanations in the first part as we normally would. So Genesis 18. Here is Abraham, a man later referred to by God himself as my friend. Wow. The appearance of the Lord God here is what we call a theophany. 
Some people try to say this appearance was Jesus, the Son of God, and they call it a Christophany. But we have no great evidence for that. Still further, some say that the three men were in fact the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Ghost. And certainly some of the early church fathers thought so. But again, there is no great evidence for that opinion. We are simply told by the author of Genesis that it was the Lord with two angels, all appearing as men. Of course, as we have seen in previous weeks, God had indeed appeared to Abraham at least twice before, and he had spoken to him in different ways at other times, as we have seen. And we may have lots of questions about this passage in our own mind, I'm sure. I'm not alone in that. And regardless of those questions, which could lead to a certain degree of supposition and guesswork, we'll concentrate on two questions which are before us in this passage. We'll be learning primarily about God, but also about Abraham and Sarah. We'll hopefully see together that in this ancient story, probably about 4,000 years ago, there is much for us today in the 21st century. We will see what comfort we can gain and what challenges are before us here in the continuing story of God in Genesis. The story of God, Abraham and Sarah. And the chapter naturally breaks down into two sections. Our first section can be seen clearly in verses 1 to 15. We can say that Abraham was certainly surprised to see these three strangers before him. He hadn't seen them coming probably. So he says, let's, let's get some hospitality on the go. And what hospitality? Surpassing the normal great hospitality of his culture. How are we doing at being hospitable to strangers? Have we entertained angels unaware that they are indeed angels? As a church, we're probably pretty good, I would say, at that. But what about us as individuals, though? Perhaps something for each of us to consider. Abraham was good at it, as we can see. He was acting out Leviticus chapter 19 and loving his neighbour, loving strangers, a long time before it was ever written. And the question I want us to concentrate on in this first section is the question asked by the Lord himself. The question in verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? That's a question I'm sure we all ask at some point, don't we? Particularly when the Lord's laid on our heart for us to do something. Or am I alone in that? You are allowed to respond, I don't mind. As I say to people when I heckle them, at least I'm listening. So is anything too hard for the Lord? We know from the, the full range of Scripture and from our own experience that God is omnipotent. That is, God has unlimited power to do all things that are consistent with his own nature. With Almighty God, nothing is impossible. Yet there are things that God cannot do because he he will not, indeed cannot do anything that is contrary to his own nature. God cannot deny himself. If he did, then he would cease to be God, wouldn't he? For instance, he cannot declare something infinite if that thing itself is finite. God cannot tempt, God cannot sin, God cannot lie. God cannot deceive. I'm sure that you have your own examples. 
And this omnipotence or all-powerful is an essential quality of God being God. Our God. Our God if we're Christians here tonight. For if God were not all-powerful, then he would not be God and he would not be worthy of our praise, our love and our worship. This is the God who created the whole universe out of nothing. Nothing. Whether it's six literal days or over eons. Nothing. This God is all-powerful. Do you believe that? Because that's our God. That's the God of Abraham. This is the God who we have seen in previous weeks took Abraham and Sarah, called them out of Ur and gave them his promises. He promised Sarah that she would have a child. She doubted. Doubted God and doubted her calling. Doubts had crept into Sarah's mind. That's why she laughed when she did and she tried to cover it up by denying that she lied. Good alternative fact, isn't it? The Lord assured Sarah in his rebuke that she will indeed have a son. He tells her straight out, almost Australian style, I will return to you at the appointed time next year and your son will be here. And here God is repeating what he has said already in verse 10. So how do we handle those nagging doubts that come into our mind? Or our minds? Or am I the only one who gets them occasionally? That little voice that comes in and says, yeah, well, I better not say what I was thinking. Because I'm Australian, so you know, I'll get those voices. So how do we handle those doubts when they come knocking on our door? Doubting not just what God has told us to do, our calling, but even our own salvation? What are some strategies we can employ to help us overcome these little doubts? We know beyond any doubt that if God has promised it, he will fulfil his promises. He's not some cheap politician, or even an expensive politician. Sarah doubted the power of God, and Abraham believed and was persuaded. Are you persuaded by God? We saw the outcome of this together in our reading from Romans chapter 4. The Bible has a unified story, doesn't it? So how do we handle doubt? We are 21st century people. Most of us here, if not all of us here, are Christians seeking to follow God. We have more knowledge about God than Sarah did at this point. And if we're being honest, we still doubt God sometimes, don't we? And our doubts have three main sources. There's old hairy legs Satan who needs to get his legs waxed. There's other people including other Christians who sometimes come along, don't they? I've had them come to me and I've had to gently um, say see you later and sometimes not so gently. And then there's our own self. Our old self says, nah. We hear that little voice saying, did God really say that to you? Are you sure that he promised that? I heard that laugh. How can you be sure? It's a delusion, isn't it, really? Pull your socks up, man, and get on with what you're supposed to be doing. Those come from Satan, our old self, or even other people, including those in the church as well as those outside the church. And as Christians, we're to gain wisdom from God. And how do we do that? 
It is through having the, the promised God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling in us, living with us, being controlled by the Spirit, being baptized in the Spirit, and by regularly studying and reading God's Word. We know that the world around us often has wisdom which is contrary to God's wisdom. Again, am I alone in seeing that? As for our spiritual immaturity or countering our old self, the only way to combat this source of doubt is through experience and having a a maturing, disciplined life of obedience to God through prayer, studying God's Word, the Bible, and allowing God the Holy Spirit to transform us and empower us. And in doing those things, our relationship with God is matured and growing, just as the trees of Malmary were maturing and growing. Some of them are still there. Our intimacy with God develops and matures. Are you intimate with God in your relationship, just as Abraham was? How are each of us doing with dealing with the doubting of God in our own lives? Are we doubting something that he's already told us to do and we're just being a bit hesitant? Again, am I the only one who experiences this? It's a very rare person I found as I talk to people indeed who have not had some form of doubt. And by doubt, I don't mean as in doubting God's very existence, but rather doubting some aspect of the Christian life, such as God's calling upon your life, he's told you to do it, so you're not doing it, right? Just as he called Abraham and Sarah. You could be doubting your assurance of salvation. You could be doubting any of the other God's promises or doubting an attribute of God, such as the innate sovereignty or his infinite goodness. And when we sin, not only do we forget who we are as his children, but we also doubt what God has said is true, aren't we, when we sin? We have to go on learning to believe and trust in God regardless of circumstances, however divergent the experience is or was or will be. And with that said, how can we overcome such doubts? Here are just four suggestions to help us overcome doubt. We want to get home by midnight, I'm sure. Firstly, there's the Bible. We read and study God's word to know, understand and live truth. To know, understand and live for our God. The omnipotent one, remember? Our lives are to be controlled by God's truth as revealed to us in the Bible. When we know truth so well, we can easily recognise the lies that old hairy legs tries to give us, don't we? The Word of God, the Bible, is there to be studied diligently so that by trusting in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit lives within us, remember, to trust in Him to lead and reveal it to us, we get to know God and His ways and His promises. We have to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus and that is achieved through studying the Bible and letting God, the Holy Spirit, teach us and listen to him. Then when we hear that nagging little voice that says, God didn't really say that, did he, Chris? If your name's Chris. Or Neil. Or Mary. Is that right? Because then we can say, oh yes, he did. And then we confess We confess our doubt to God and he will listen to us. And if doubts persist, persist, try talking to somebody whom you trust and express to them your doubts. They may very well be able to help you. Get them to hold you accountable to to them as well. And in faith, show total trust in God for your life. The faith we have is an offensive weapon 
and also an attack weapon against the mistruths and the doubts that confront and nag us. By maintaining our trust in God's promises and in God's power, focusing and keeping our minds on Jesus Christ, any doubts can be extinguished. And then lastly, of the four, we talk to God. We develop our intimacy with God by reading the Bible and by talking to him. Again, how's your intimacy with God going? Indeed, as a, as a body, how is our intimacy with God going and growing? Prayer, talking to God, also changes us. It can change our very character and our decisions, can't it? Well, again, is that just my experience? And if our prayers are filled with love, compassion, grace and mercy, then you know what? We also will become ever more loving, ever more compassionate, ever more gracious and merciful. And isn't that an attraction to those who are outside the church? We want this place filled, don't we? And then prayer is how we are energised. Have you discovered that in your own life? Fighting doubt in our own power is useless because the doubts will persist. And if we ask God to help us overcome our doubts, he will help us. He's living within us. That's his promise. Remember his promise. As a Christian, God lives within you. When we talk to God, we strengthen our relationship with him, developing our intimacy with him. And when we ask other Christians to pray for us, you know what the result is? The unity of the church is strengthened. I know that the people outside the church want to see the church acting as one. Or again, is that my experience alone? Are we aware of that? And when we see God answer prayer, our faith is matured and doubts are more easily cast aside. And speaking about prayer, we go on to our next section. Genesis 18, verse 25. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The first question of two that we uh, looked at together was verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now let's look at our uh, second question and it can be found in our second section which is from verse 16 onwards. It can be found in verse 25 as we said. This is our first fully recorded prayer that we have in the Bible. The outcome of this prayer is clearly seen when we look at chapter 18 next week with Ian Kirby. I'm sure you noticed that this prayer was in the form of a conversation. How often in our prayers... Do we say our bit and then run off and leave God to it? Don't we? We don't give God time to answer. We don't hear from God because we don't give him time to speak. Try doing that in your marriage. Abraham was so intimate with God that we know, that we know, that we know that God referred to Abraham as my friend. Wow. Abraham has overheard God seemingly talking to himself about his plans for Sodom, as well as reiterating his promise, promises concerning Abraham himself. And so by showing concern and compassion for Sodom, knowing what he does about God, it is as if Adam now engages in some good Middle Eastern bartering with God. However, notice that God never revealed his top hand, did he? His top price. Abraham's very love and compassion for these people is expressed here in this contra, com, controversial, conversational prayer of intercession. 
And are our intercessions and prayers like this? Are our prayers authentic in conveying our concern for those who are not yet following Jesus? Are our prayers expressing a burning concern and compassion for people who will be lost in eternity if they do not turn and start following God? And not only as prayers as a church body, but also as individuals here. Abraham himself had great anguish, love and compassionate concern for the salvation of Sodom. I think that is clearly evident here. Are we like that for those who are unsaved, both those we know and that we don't know? Do our intercessory prayers for others, for all sorts of reasons, have such compassion and conviction and authenticity? You can tell that this passage spoke to me. And as we pray for Ringwood to find and follow Jesus, are we pleading with God to save those people who are sitting condemned under his judgment lest they come to a saving knowledge of him? It is in the very nature of God to reach out with love into a world that needs his love and light. And he uses us, his church, his arms, his legs, his his eyes, his voice. That is us, isn't it? Are we bold yet humble in our prayer life? Abraham didn't take his relationship with God for granted. He approached boldly yet humbly and lowly. Do we sometimes take our relationship with God for granted? Because I'm sure that we do. I know I do. I soon get a kick up the bottom or a clip round the ears. Again, that's part of intimacy, isn't it? And we see here also in this passage that not only did Abraham have compassion towards Sodom, but he also had concern for God's character, didn't he? Would God really deny himself, asked Abraham in verse 25. How can you as God, this is in prayer, remember, how can you as God contradict yourself? Will you, a just God, act unjustly? By no means no, God. He was pretty bold, wasn't he? Are our prayers like that? Is our prayer life like that, both as a church and as individuals? Do we build our intimate relationship with God by speaking boldly and courageously, yet also humbly and lowly? Do we convey our concern and compassion for others authentically to God in prayer, not only for their salvation, but for their well-being as well in our normal prayer life? Do we pray to God, expressing his very character? May our prayer life be like this example of Abraham's. Fear not, we're coming to an end soon. It's not quite midnight. And so with all that said, what can we now say as we wrap things up? We looked at this story firstly in a broad sweep before honing in on two questions. Two questions that we ask ourselves. We have much to be thankful to God for the life of Abraham and Sarah, don't we? Abraham, the one whom God himself called my friend. Wow. And if it were not for Abraham, we probably wouldn't be seated here together as a church. Our togetherness as church is part of the blessing of all nations which came as part of God's assured promise to Abraham and also to Sarah. 
Praise be to the God of almighty power who fulfills his promises. Amen? All his promises. Want to know what his promises are? Read your Bible. Study it. Hold God accountable to holding his promises. And our first question from verse 14 was concerning God's power. God is all-powerful and he keeps his promise. This promise-keeping God is powerful. In the Old Testament, the supreme example of his power is in the creation story. In the New Testament, the supreme example of God's power is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Just as we know God did for Abraham and Sarah, he does also for us who are following him, being obedient children. This all-powerful God keeps his promises. Promises to you, promises to me, promises to his children. All of his promises, including the ones still yet to be fulfilled. Evidence of this is before us here in the communion table. Just as God repeated his promises to Abraham and Sarah, we remember God's promises to us. One of the ways that we do this is through repeatedly engaging in the Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper together, isn't it? This we do until Jesus returns again for us. Returning for us as promised. Are you ready for that event? As I said, I've died twice and been sent back twice. So obviously my place is not ready yet. Thank you. And in the meanwhile, God promised to come live within you and I when we started following him. I've been a Christian now about 35, 36 years. Amazing. I came to God as an act of rebellion against my parents. Because I'm naturally rebellious, as you probably are aware. And the fruit, in the meanwhile, God has promised to, to come live within you and I when we started following him. And the fruit we produce is evidence of this indwelling. If God has called you, explicitly told you to do something, he will empower you to do just that. He won't ask you to do anything that he is not prepared to empower or provide for it to be accomplished. Just as he did with Sarah, uh, are we convinced, truly convinced as we pray and converse with God that our God is all-powerful and just? We know this almighty and powerful God of ours is also an amazing God of love. Yet, if you're like me, sometimes we doubt that, don't we? Or is that, again, just me? Last weekend, I held a memorial service online for a dear friend in Australia who died of cancer two weeks ago. I'm glad that in the week before she died, I got the chance to tell her that I love her. There are a few of us there from Australia and the UK. This is in addition to the, the memorial service that they had there in Australia at her church. Sue was a beautiful Christian lady who I've known for over 35 years. Sue's faith was in God and she knew that she knew that she knew that she would inherit salvation and enter into everlasting life with him. Apparently she was almost as cheeky as me, but you wouldn't believe that. She would ask me to do a wow church with her online when she couldn't get to church. And of course it only takes five minutes to come up with something. Cancer may have caused her death, but I am completely and utterly convinced that God kept his promises to Sue. And she is now more Sue than ever before and more alive than ever before. 
God is all-powerful and God has made those same promises to all those who would follow him. As for our second question, are we truly convinced that God will judge rightly? Can we honestly say that our prayers for others are filled with love and compassion just as Abraham's prayer was? What is the evidence of God's justice? Supremely it is in the cross of Jesus Christ, God's Son, that God's justice is demonstrated fully. That is partly what we remember, again, when we come to the Lord's Supper. Therefore, it is impossible that a just God can do anything unjust. His ways are not our ways. His ways are not the ways of our governments, are they? Romans chapter 3, verse 25 to 26, tells us this. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. In our prayer life, do we sometimes pray yet simultaneously doubt God's power? to answer and fulfil his purposes expressed in our prayers and our conversation with him? In our prayers, are we asking God to be true to his character or are we somehow trying to sneakily and foolishly manipulate God into doing something which is contrary to his nature? Be assured, my friends, my family, God is faithful, is he not? God is love, is he not? God will make and keep his promises that he has made to us. Made to you personally, made to me personally, made to us as a church. God is personal. This story before us reflects that. God is just and will always act justly as exemplified in and demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ, which we celebrate at Easter. God is a just God who is also holy. He can't abide sin. That's why he was going to Sodom to have a look, wasn't he? Is there any unconfessed sin in your life? If there is, please don't let it remain so for long. Unconfessed sin has a corrosive nature to it and it feeds your doubt of God to forgive you and cleanse you. My God is all-powerful, all-conquering and always loving King who fulfills all the promises that he has made to me. Dave from Australia. Is he also your king? Friends, family, let's live for him alone, focusing upon him alone so we can endure, reign and be faithful to him and be with him our God. Let's remember who our God is, a God of power, a God of justice, an amazing and almighty God of love. May we go from here taking comfort in that God keeps his promises concerning us and yet also that we may be challenged in our prayer life and our developing intimacy with him. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that you are an almighty God. You're a God of power, a God of justice, and yet you are also a God of love. Help us as your church, both as individuals and a body, to be compassionate upon people, to love people, and may our prayer life convey that to you.
May we be a changed people because tonight we met with you, the living God. And we ask this, Father, through the name of your Son, Jesus, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, who lives within those of us who are your children. He seals our salvation and he unites us as family because we are indeed your children and building our intimacy with you, just as Abraham did. May it be so, O God. Amen.